0: G'day and welcome to another episode of the Equip podcast. And we have been looking at a reformed theology of salvation. We've been using the letters T-U-L-I-P, tulip, to try and get our heads around what it is that the reformers and later churches and believers cast in their mold believe about grace and about how God saves us. And it's worth saying again at the outset that Although we're talking about salvation theologically, these are not salvation issues. So, you don't need to believe the things that I'm talking about today or the things that we've looked at in class in order to be a Christian, Uh, but we are trying our best to see that this is a biblically responsive account of how someone becomes and stays a Christian. What we're looking at today is unconditional election the second in those different acronym letters. Total depravity last time, and this time, unconditional election. And really this answers the question of who has the ultimate say in whether or not an individual is saved. Is it God or is it the individual? We might be tempted to say the individual because, of course, from our perspective, we make a real and genuine choice. And yes, we do. But on the other hand, how do the scriptures represent the choice that we make? Is it contingent on any way on God's sovereign choice? That's what we're going to look at. A definition of unconditional election, and this is taken from Wayne Grudem, who has written A Systematic Theology. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So at the outset, election in Reformed understanding is not based on quote-unquote foreseen faith, as if God looks into the future with a telescope, sees who will make a so-called free will choice, and then chooses people on that basis. And we'll see why When we get to a definition of what foreknowledge is in Romans chapter 8. We also see that election is not universal. He doesn't elect everyone, but he elects some people to be saved. But what we can say from this definition is that election is God's choice. It's an act of God before creation. It's unmerited. That is not on account of anything foreseen in the person. And ultimately, it's pleasing to God. It's because of his sovereign good pleasure. And we should pause here and and just remember that everything that God does according to his will is what he wants to do. Nothing actually constrains God. The only thing God can't do is lie or do anything that's contrary to his character. But he's in heaven and he does what pleases him. And so it pleases him to choose some to be saved. You might agree with that. You might disagree with that. But the question is, what does the Bible teach on this? And the first thing to say is that the Bible's clear. God does choose people at different points. Uh, in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 8, uh, we hear him say, or we hear Moses say to Israel, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you. And he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's not because Israel was great. It's not because they were obedient or special. Rather, they were small. They were nothing. And yet God chose to set his love on Israel. The same thing when you come to the disciples in the New Testament. Here's Levi sitting at a tax booth. Jesus says, follow me. Again, not because Levi is particularly open to him or because uh, Levi has done great things with his life or set to obey God. Uh, no, he just gives the invitation and then Levi leaves his stuff and follows. And the fact that he's unworthy of this is underscored by the reaction of the Pharisees and the scribes where they say, as, as um, uh, Jesus is eating in Levi's house, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So, Levi obviously isn't really set in the mould of the sort of person that you'd expect would come to be a follower of Jesus, and yet, Jesus chooses him, and he follows. God is in the business of choosing people, especially unlikely people. Even consider in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, thinking about us. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Again, God chooses the lowly, He chooses the unworthy, He chooses the unlikely. But the fact behind it is that God chooses. Moving on from that, we see that God chooses individuals to be saved. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6, this is part of the outworking of his will and his plan. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. When? When? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. The sense of God choosing people, again without any foreseen merit in them, before they even exist. Permeates this passage. And the result of this is that he would be praised for his glorious grace. That is, we have done nothing to earn or qualify for this gift. It's purely a gratuitous, lavish, just poured out gift on us. And you even catch that, I think, in verse 4 in love he predestined us, not in Arbitrary selection, but he he sets his love on us. Do we ever see that in practice? Well, in Acts 13, verse 48, uh, the Gentiles respond to the gospel, and it says that when they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The order there in Luke's thinking is important. He understands that God appoints people to eternal life And those appointed, when they hear the gospel, at some point, they believe. Eternal life follows belief. Belief follows hearing. Uh, and, And before all of that is God's appointment by His will. Another big passage that reflects on this is Romans 8, verse 28 to 30. And I'll read this out. And we know that those who love Oh, sorry, I'll start again. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Raises the question, who are the called ones? Who are the ones that have this purpose over their life? Verse 21 tells us, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. There's that word. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, who are the ones who are called? It's the one whom God foreknew. What does it mean to foreknow someone? We talked about this a lot in class. Uh, Foreknowing might be, you know, perhaps... God knew that they would come to faith on their own free will. But as we saw in a, a whole bunch of different references, where the, the Bible uses this, knowledge, this this language of foreknowledge or of knowing someone, so where it's a person that's the object of foreknowing, uh, it, it's relational. It's not just facts, but it's the person. And it has an undercurrent of choice and of setting something on them. Um, Jeremiah 1, verse 5, that God foreknew Jeremiah in the womb before he was even born. That's not just that he knew about Jeremiah, it's that he, he intimately knew him. And, and the context of Jeremiah 1 is that he's actually appointing him to the task of being a prophet. You could look at Amos 3, verses 1 to 2, John 10, 27 to 29, Romans 11, verse 2, uh, a couple of references in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, and verse 20. Uh, there's there's a whole lot in the Bible that talks about foreknowledge being of persons and of being, uh, in a sense, choosing them to be recipients of grace and love. Um, if you want to look at the the sort of the major Greek dictionaries, there's one that says foreknowledge actually just means to choose in advance. Um Where that leads us with Romans 8, 28 to 30 is, if I translate it this way, for those whom he chose in advance, right, he foreknew, he also predestined, that is, set their destiny to be conformed to the image of his son. Right? So if you are chosen in advance, then your destiny is you will become like Jesus. And those whom he predestined, he set to that destiny, he also called. That is, the gospel came to them and he opened their heart, He called them in a way that that they should come and, and be invited and, and trust in Christ. And those whom He called, he also justified. All those that God calls in this way, having predestined them and having foreknown them, will be justified. And those whom he justified, he saved, declared innocent, he also glorified. That is, our future is sure. We will make it home to be with God if we are those who have been foreknown or chosen in advance. So Romans 8, verse 28 to 30 is a really key one. It's sometimes called the, uh, the golden chain in terms of the believer's destiny. And I think that it's a great encouragement. I personally find these verses so encouraging Uh, sometimes I go to them just thinking, why will I wake up as a Christian tomorrow? It's not because of how smart I am, not because of how good I am, but because of how good God is and how wise his will is and that he's graciously chosen me. Uh, Romans 9, verse 6 to 16 is another big one. Um, I won't say everything on these verses, but I'll just read them out and make a couple of comments. Uh, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Pause on that. The context here is, why is it that Israelites who were promised by God to be his covenant people, why is it that many of them have not received Jesus as Messiah? Is it because the word of God has failed? And the the writer Paul here emphatically says, no, the word has not failed. Rather, it is because not everyone who simply has the title of Israelite, who belongs to the nation of Israel, is actually an Israelite. Not everyone who um, claims to be a member of this promise that God has given is an actual recipient of this promise. It is not by genetics. It is not by race. um, It is actually by something to do with God having done something for the person, not children of the flesh and and fleshly things like decisions that we make uh, or or, um, more pointedly in the context, um, uh, having been born as an Israelite but rather because someone is a child of God. God has made them his child. How, how does he make someone his child? By making a promise. Then, verse 9, this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather, forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls She was told the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Another way of thinking about that might be that Jacob I chose, I lovingly chose, um, but Esau I didn't choose and, and set myself against. So what's happening here? The promise is that God would send a child and that that child would Begin a nation, and that that nation would be holy and set apart for him. But it's actually only those who are chosen by God as objects of his mercy that are, in fact, the children of God. They are true Israel. They're the ones who are patterned after Jacob, who before he'd done anything good or bad was chosen and loved by God, not after Esau, who before he'd done anything good or bad was uh, passed over by God and had God set against him. Now, that might seem unjust. Verse 14 picks up on that. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And here Paul says, By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, it's interesting here that, uh, sort of in speaking back to the injustice argument, Paul doesn't say, well, you know, God said that I will have hatred for who I have hatred. And I will reject who I want to reject. No, he says, I'll have mercy on whom I want to have mercy and compassion on whom I want to have compassion. Why does he put it that way? Well, because it's a wonder that anyone receives mercy. It's a wonder that anyone receives compassion from God. None of us deserve it. All of us are like Esau, right? Uh, All of us ought to be hated by God because of our sin. In fact, when you think about Jacob, who God loved and chose, Jacob wasn't a good guy, right? He totally, what did he do? He tricked his father and lied and. And all that he wasn't the sort of guy that you choose, again, in the same way that Israel isn't the sort of nation, nor the disciples are the sort of people. But irrespective of good or bad, God simply chose. He has mercy on whom he has mercy, compassion on whom he has compassion. Hence Paul's conclusion that it doesn't depend on human will, but on God and his mercy. And the real mystery isn't why God only chooses some, but that he chooses any. Now, if you want to follow up a few more verses on this, you can look at your sheet and there's a bunch down the bottom there uh, on page five. But I do want to run through some objections as well to this idea of unconditional election. And, and just quickly to summarize in case um, you're still a little bit confused, I think the scriptures clearly teach that God elects some people to be saved and it's an unconditional choice based on nothing in us. But simply his mercy. And he foreknows people in the sense of actively choosing them for salvation. And that's implied by that sort of relational symbolism of what it is to know someone in scripture. Uh, And those whom God foreknows are predestined to be like his son and are called by the gospel and are justified by the gospel and are glorified in their final resurrection. All of this is based ultimately on God's sovereign choice. That's what we mean when we talk about unconditional election. I'm going to run through some objections to these ideas, uh, and I'm going to put that into a separate recording in case you want to listen to this in two parts. So I'll sign off here, and you can pick up on the next one if you like. Thanks very much.